0: Were they really the superstar celebrities of their day? And did emperors actually deliver death sentences with a thumbs-down gesture? In today's Everything You Want to Know episode, Emily Briffett spoke to Alison Futrell, Associate Professor of History at the University of Arizona, to find out the answers to some of your top questions about ancient Rome's arena fighters. As always with these episodes, the questions have been drawn from top internet search queries and ones that you've submitted via our social media channels.
4: Hello to you, Alison. It's really lovely to be talking to you today.
3: It's great to talk to you too, Emily.
4: Today we're going to be talking about, well, everything you wanted to know about gladiators. And I have to say there have been a lot of questions sent in by our listeners, so I hope you're ready.
3: I am absolutely ready.
4: Who doesn't want to know everything about gladiators? I'm going to start with the question from Instagram, which is, what was a gladiator? Just succinctly cutting
3: it down to its essence, uh, paired combatants is what gladiators were, who fought in front of spectators in politically resonant contexts in Rome.
4: Perfectly short answer. Makes sense. We've got a lot to get through. The uh, And I've got another question here on Instagram, which is, Where
3: actually does the word gladiator come from? Gladiator literally means someone who actually wields a gladius. Now, a gladius is a relatively short sword, and it's used for thrusting. It's not used for cutting. It's not used for slashing. slashing. It's also a sword that was used by the Roman infantry, by legionaries. And that kind of raises a question, who actually used it first? And it seems to be the gladiators used it first. Uh, There's a story about how in 105, the general Marius hired gladiators to teach infantrymen how to use this new weapon, relatively new to them at least, uh, to train them quickly in effective and aggressive use of that weapon. Uh, They were kind of in a a pinch at that point in time. A couple of legionary armies had been destroyed by invaders in the Roman province of Gaul. Uh, So Marius was in a bit of a pickle and he had just gotten a bunch of fresh new soldiers, uh, drafting soldiers from the, the poorest, members of the population in Rome, and they need to get their skill sets in order really quickly. Now, this actually had an impact on the armies using these kinds of people, this kind of connection uh, to a new set of soldiers. Uh, And eventually this will lead to a real problem with warlords and with uh, politically useful masses of soldiers in the later part of the Roman Republic.
4: We often hear of gladiators in the Roman context, but... Did other
3: ancient civilizations have their own form of gladiators? Sure. In fact, I would be hard-pressed to to think of a civilization that didn't have significant combats, sort of single combats between important individuals that other people gathered around to watch that would have some sort of meaning or impact or significance in the moment. Uh, You might think about duels between heroes in epic, But that sort of activity is something that's found basically everywhere, though not under the name of gladiators necessarily.
4: When and I guess why did gladiators first come to the scene?
3: We first know about gladiators uh, from the middle of the third century, and that's an important time for shows and spectacles, as it turns out, in Rome. Uh, it's also a significant time for the history of humankind because that's when the Roman state gets involved in overseas military activity uh, that eventually leads to the Romans becoming the dominant political power in the ancient Mediterranean. Um, so they start to interact more and more dynamically with other people, they gain more power in the Mediterranean. They start to think about what makes them Roman. And I think that, that the spectacles that they start to put on more regularly as part of what the state does, what are the state duties, are a means of them telling a certain kind of story about themselves, uh, who they are, uh, what has put them in this kind of position. And to, to justify, in some sense, their political authority. It's interesting, too, with a, the military thing. Uh, one of the, the significant military leaders at this time, Aemilius Paulus, makes this comment about it's the same skill set that's used by a general in planning a successful campaign that enables that general, returned to a civilian context, to put on really great shows. And that kind of connection between the two indicates a certain resonance uh, that these spectacles have
4: i think a lot of our questions are about was this just for entertainment so it's not just that side of it i guess
3: it's never just entertainment let me put it that way you know we have a much more casual notion of entertainment we have entertainment on demand when i'm standing in line somewhere when i'm bored whatever i have vast arrays of spectacle literally in the palm of my hand and they did not So entertainment has a different meaning for them, Uh, especially mass entertainments that the Romans start to come up with are special and rare and different from one's daily experiences. In these purpose-built venues that blocked out the rest of the world, they literally become this new universe filled with meaning with lessons about Rome's power, with lessons about the emperor, the general's generosity and his command of nature. He makes myths come true and we have seen it with our own eyes. These fragrant mists drift down on us. They refresh our senses. They cool us. A silken sheets manned by sailors shade us from the sun and transform our perceptions with colors and we're showered with cakes and fruits and exotic nuts from distant gardens and fighters in front of us demonstrate that even people from far away who are unfamiliar with the city and its stories, who might be lowborn, who might be untaught, even they have the capacity for bravery and resilience that we can be inspired by and we respect their efforts and we cheer their names and the sponsor heeds us and our responses and our wishes. So it's it's not just entertainment at all. I think we've had a few questions
4: here from uh, Sweden Hungary on Twitter and Diogo Morgado on Twitter as well. Who's also asked how popular were gladiator fights across the Roman empire? Were they perhaps more popular than other sports and games?
3: Uh, they were certainly popular. Uh, We know they were popular because their amphitheaters, which are structures specifically designed to house this kind of activity, these kinds of blood events, are scattered across the empire. And these are very big, very expensive structures that require a heavy commitment. Uh, Although there is some variety in the, the amphitheaters, some were less expensive than others, different kinds of labor, different kinds of materials being used. But very sophisticated structures, potentially, with a lot of attention to entrances and exits, accommodations, large audience, a lot of concrete. And they wouldn't commit those kinds of resources if they didn't anticipate a really positive response from the general population. So they were popular. Were they the most popular? Eh. Over time, clearly other sorts of events, I'm thinking specifically of chariot racing, were popular at the same time, were popular before gladiators started to be deployed by the Roman state, and clearly became the most popular kind of event in the the later empire and in Byzantium.
4: Well... We've spoken, obviously, about this side of spectacle and obviously an element of popularity. So we've got a question, another one on Twitter, actually, by someone whose name is Archive Lurker. They've asked, was gladiatorial combat more choreographed and staged, managed perhaps like we might see professional wrestling today?
3: It's hard for us to say how choreographed individual combats were, um, there's the potential that they were significantly choreographed. Uh, And part of that is because outside Rome in particular, um, people who were contracting with a gladiatorial troop to provide a certain set of games would be contracting with a troop. Uh, So they'd be using fighters who were very experienced with each other, who would be practicing with each other, who knew each other, that sort of thing. Uh, That said, the Roman audience didn't want to see something that looked rehearsed. They wanted to see a good dynamic, dramatic, challenging show, but the gladiators knew that. So you know, there's there's speculation that they were able to present something that maybe was less hazardous to the individual combatants involved. That did offer certain things that the audience clearly loved. That did have certain connections to modern day uh, professional wrestling and so forth. Uh, that enabled them to to make. Use of their best skills uh, to show those off, uh, to make a sort of personal appeal uh, as individuals to the crowd, to get the crowd on their side, and, and so forth, uh, and to get them engaged in a productive and entertaining way with with the outcome of the combat.
4: So I think this is one that we've all seen, in, the, particularly in the films. There are so many films that feature gladiators. But was the thumbs up, thumbs down thing as for the death sentence, was that actually a thing? Or
3: is that just kind of made up for popular audiences in the films? Thumbs were turned, and that's literally what the Latin means, polico so. Uh, That was one of the main signaling gestures, but we don't actually have images of how they were turned. We don't have images with the thumbs up and thumbs down, like on social media. How does a thumb turn? How can you actually do that in a way that can be detected from a distance? Because they are using this to assess the response of the audience and to to make determinations about outcome and so forth. Uh, There might be other ways that be would be clearer. Uh, We know that they used a sign that drew the finger across the neck, uh, which is pretty visible from a distance as well. But fingers were something that people used. Fingers are also used by gladiators who raised fingers to acknowledge their forced submission and that they yield to the will of the, the viewers or the sponsor to what happens next. How often do gladiators actually fight to the death? Using what data we have available to us, it's pretty clear that the Colosseum was not Thunderdome. It was not two men enter, one man leaves. Uh, and there are some people who've done the math with the very non-representative uh, evidentiary sample that survives, selecting relatively well-documented first century, and these people suggest that maybe one in five bouts ended in a death. So if you figure out the death rate, Uh, That's for the people who are losing. They have a 1 in 5 chance of dying. For everyone who's actually entering the arena, it's a 1 in 10 chance of dying. But we don't know how that death actually takes place. Are they dying fighting? Is it a a weapons sort of thing? Or are they fighting to some person uh, submitting, asking to be released, being ordered to die? Uh, We're not quite sure. But if you think about it in an economic basis, you know this is, this is an investment that people are making uh, to contract with these particular performers. And no doubt built into the contract are special fees if they actually lose one of those performances during the show that have to be paid. So there's a certain kind of incentive to a number of different people to not encourage the, the death thing. It's also clear that in some particular shows, where the emperor states uh, that these will be sine missio combats, uh, that there will be no release for the the non-winner, that the response from the audience is not a positive one. Um, This is a a judgment, apparently, on the emperor, uh, and the stories that are told about this indicate that this is received pretty negatively. Uh, It's the mark of a bad emperor, Plus, as I said, it's it's not cost effective. Uh, It's a waste of resources. And these are resources with faces who have the opportunity to make connections uh, with the crowds. And the Roman crowds don't seem to like that. It's interesting, too, that in other contexts, they don't like the mass slaughter of animals either. This this upsets them. Um, It's off-putting, and they start to Turn against the sponsor of the individual shows. Uh, so they like it when people have the opportunity to use the resources, to take advantage of chance, uh, of their skill set, of their charm, uh, seizing their moments, uh, fate and fortuna on their size. These are meaningful things to the spectators. They're meaningful in their daily lives. And if someone has to die, uh, that diminishes those factors. It's a bad message. Was there a way to get out of this life? We know of a number of gladiators who actually retired, (laughs) who finished up their career and went on. Uh, Some of them retired with special honour. They had a sort of ceremonial handing over of the wooden sword. The rudis um, granted their freedom from the the ludis. Sometimes they became official personnel for the, the the gladiatorial school as trainers and as, as administrators and, and whatnot um, but yeah they they could get out of it um, you know some people were sentenced uh, to the the gladiatorial school too uh, as a criminal um, penalty uh, and this was apparently available for them as well so we've had this
4: question on Twitter by from Adam Platt and from Gabsat on Instagram, who asked, Were gladiators the pop stars of the day ultimately? Did they become rich and famous? Did they have fan clubs? Well,
3: sort of. Uh, people definitely favored certain kinds of gladiators, certain kinds of armature. Some were big fans of the heavily armed people. Uh, there were others who did like the net men, the ready, ari. They were much more visible, they were more naked. In, in certain ways. Were they pop stars? Eh. Well, they were famous. Some of them were very famous. They were sexy to some people. Yeah, certainly. Uh, There were stories about how they attracted women in particular, even elite women, who sometimes abandoned their families to run off with gladiators. And you have these image uh, there's one story in particular that has this senatorial lady who runs off with her, her gladiator bow, let's put him that way, and he's all deformed from his bouts in the arena. He has one eye that's sort of weeping fluid constantly, uh, and she's on a ship sailing across the Mediterranean, and you know, she's having a great time, wind in her hair, like, yes, this is wonderful, uh, and he's kind of loathsome and, and disappointing in certain ways. Is this a frequent occurrence that elite ladies are running off of gladiators? Probably not. Uh, gladiators themselves are not known for being able to be good providers. Uh, they have a profession that sort of discourages that. Uh, they're not leisured, wealthy people. Uh, they're not influencers. They're not um, living the high life. You know, they aren't they necessarily models. Uh, charioteers, I think, may uh, in selectively better known for their wealth and for their uh, fatal fandom. There's one story about one particular charioteer uh, who has his fans literally throwing themselves onto his funeral pyre when he finally died. They were so intensely committed. You have to kind of wonder about who's telling these stories. And, and this makes a difference, too. Uh, we, there's some pretty famous graffiti that exists in Pompeii uh, about Crescens, the netman who trains by night, all the girls. Oh, or Akeletus, the, the Thracian, all the girls gasp over him. But who's writing the graffiti? Uh, is it the collective girls who are writing these stories about these, these male gladiators? Or is it male fans? Or is it the gladiators themselves? And that really makes a difference in how we understand this kind of statement. Were there certain types of gladiators that maybe had an edge over their opponents? Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that. If you're actually thinking about the edge itself, uh, there are differences in the swords. There are differences in the pointy things that are being thrust into vulnerable flesh, right? Uh, So the gladius itself is a short thrusting sword, uh, but that's not the only kind of sword they use. Uh, The sika is this curved sword that some gladiators use uh, that is much more for slashing. Uh, So if you want the display of an edge on flesh, that's going to be more graphic perhaps uh, than the, the thrusting weapon of the gladiators. But the thing is... Paired combat doesn't actually work that way. Uh, there are some types that typically fight other types. Uh, so they're, they're paired off against someone who kind of balances them out in terms of challenges and vulnerabilities versus strengths and advantages. So a classic pair is the netman versus the secutor. And the radiarius is the netman. And he's armed with a weighted net, hence the name, and a trident. He doesn't have a helmet. He doesn't have a lot of protection. Um, He has something maybe to protect his arm and his neck, something like that. Uh, Supposedly he has a dagger too, but it's not really clear to me where he puts it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) where is he holding it? Uh, But he can stand at a distance and hurl his weapons at someone. Uh, He's not overly encumbered with things, so he's very mobile, he's fast. His opponent, the Secular, is heavily armored, Uh, He's got this interesting kind of helmet that's very smooth. It's not going to catch on any weapon. And it has these weird little eye holes in it. And it covers his entire head, basically. And that's kind of a disadvantage as it is protective, sure. But it's probably very hard for him to see and might even be hard for him to breathe after a certain point. He's also carrying a very heavy, big shield. He has a heavy sword. He's got Leg protection he 's got arm protection, um, and that makes it more wearing on him to be in a long term fight you know it 's harder for him to to deal with that and it 's also really creepy looking that helmet is just weird you know representations of it are spooky, and that probably affects the way in which he 's able to interact with the audience. you know it makes him kind of scarier and it might changes how, you know, how things work out for him in terms of the overall uh, viewer response, too.
4: Brandon Mitchell on Facebook asked us how varied were events in terms of fighters, weapons, number of participants? Kind of touched upon that a bit there, but could you go
3: into more detail about it? Uh, Spectacles probably varied a lot depending on where they were put on. In Rome, this is the centre of power, that's where the resources really exist. Uh, and that's where the emperor is motivated to put on significant shows as a, a demonstration of his power, uh, to celebrate really significant things, uh, to make use of resources that are coming in as the result of major victories and that sort of stuff. Uh, so that's where we know about the the spectacles that go on for literally hundreds of days, uh, that involve hundreds of combatants uh, that take up a significant point of the the yearly calendar. Uh, So that's where the really big shows and really fancy shows with all kinds of special effects and a huge variety of performers too. And not just gladiators. You know, people are going to be um, having combats, if we want to put them that way, uh, with exotic animals. And other kinds of shows are are going on as well that are not necessarily going to, to lead to significant deaths. Whereas in the smaller arenas out on the on the fringes of empire, chances are you're going to have many fewer shows. Uh, they're going to be much more modest in number. Uh, they might be drawing on local talent to show up in the arena between bouts and Sing a little song, do a little dance, tell a little story, that kind of thing. Uh, So a bit more humble. And probably things running the gamut in between. Uh, We have respectively sized amphitheatres in Gaul, in North Africa, uh, which are nowhere near the size of the Colosseum. But still, you know, expensive and reasonably fancy and reasonably able to accommodate the special effects too.
4: I'd like to move on a little bit to literally ask probably one of the main contextual questions, which is who actually became a gladiator? Who were they? We
3: know of several pathways that led to this life. Earliest gladiators seem to be prisoners of war. Prisoners of war who were not ransomed back by their families. So people who were captured by the Romans and we're not going to go back home. Uh, in ancient warfare, routinely these people would be recirculated into the larger slave economy of the ancient Mediterranean. So there's kind of an overlap between prisoners of war and slaves. Slaves who seemed suitable to this kind of activity might also be chosen by people running gladiatorial schools and taken into this kind of life. So those are, those are two kinds. Uh, condemned criminals also made it into the arena. Those who were uh, convicted on a capital charge basically went into the arena for a one-time event and they were there to die. Those who went into the gladiatorial schools as criminals, that was not a death sentence. It was not anticipated uh, that they would be very quickly uh, joining the realm of the, the dead. Um, there were also volunteers. People who actually did choose to do this though they may have been rather fewer than the other kinds of categories.
4: So could you tell us a little bit more about those who actually went on to
3: make that choice to become a gladiator? So some people did apparently choose to do this. Um, And why they might make this choice is is a big question. Uh, There are some stories that suggest that this was a way to get out of serious debt and importantly to save your family, especially your honored parents, from poverty by willingly sacrificing your own security by taking this particular route. There are a few other anecdotes that suggest that there were thrill seekers who were choosing to be gladiators, Uh, people who got a charge from the risk who were drawn in by the focus of the audience's attention, uh, who were lured by the possibility that they could become celebrities in some sense if they were successful at that. Um, There are some people who are actually actively enjoying that. Uh, There are some other stories that um, people were drawn by the humiliation involved here, uh, that there was this weird kind of uh, attraction to to that to to the abasement of your body and and the shame that was involved as well but you know the the perks of potential celebrity were there for some people uh, bear in mind that the stories about celebrity uh, the stories about the the occasional gladiator who became the emperor's good buddy or became the the love pet of the <laughs> empress um, It's not that the gladiator is in control of that relationship, you know. It's the emperor who's in control of the relationship and who's making sure that things happen in a certain way, Um, not the gladiator. Uh, So there's some risk in becoming the emperor's pet, you know. Uh, Some emperors might be more reliable friends than others. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... There's a, another episode that took place where four adult sons of a gladiator uh, pleaded for his release from the gladiatorial school because of his excellent service in the arena. And apparently, they did this in a public setting, possibly in the arena itself. We don't always
2: realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p dot com/historyextra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need indeed
4: This brings me on to a question that we've had from Catherine Kelly on Twitter, who's asked, where did
3: gladiators fit in the social structure of Roman society? Everyone who became a gladiator uh, surrendered a certain amount of social standing. Gladiators by law were infamous. And what I mean by that is that they lost certain things legally in Rome. So by, by Roman law, um, gladiators... Uh, did not have access to certain kinds of of political power. Uh, They did not have certain kinds of of social mobility. Uh, By Roman law, they were not to marry um, someone of elite standing. Uh, They had sort of the, the same social stigma as actors and as prostitutes because gladiators like them used their bodies to give pleasure to many people and they were submitting to the will and to the desires of of the crowds. Um, They also, as gladiators, had to take an oath uh, to submit to the discipline of being a gladiator. That meant as part of their training, they would regularly be beaten. They surrendered physical autonomy. They did not control their own bodies. Uh, And that was something that that slaves had to submit to. So by becoming a gladiator, you put yourself physically in the same position, the same status as someone who was enslaved. That's something that was seen as absolutely horrific uh, by those who were elites, who assumed that, of course, they are always going to be in charge of their bodies. They will never have this kind of problem. And by elites, I, of course, mean elite males in particular. So that was something that was repellent to them. And that's why they viewed people who chose to become gladiators with a certain amount of suspicion. They have that kind of lens on that choice being made. We've
4: spoke a little bit about this side of popularity and celebrity. This is a question from Jessica Roberts on Facebook, who said, well, who was the most famous gladiator in their
3: time? The most famous gladiator is probably Spartacus. He, of course, was the head man for a major rebellion, uh, the last most successful of the three so-called slave wars of the Republic Uh, He did destroy a series of armies who were sent against him and his army of gladiators and slaves and refugees and displaced peoples and so forth, uh, and managed to run pretty freely amok in Italy for a number of years, causing a lot of distress to the powers that be. But I did want to point out that Spartacus is probably a lot more famous to us than he was to Romans who didn't happen to be alive during the Spartacan war. Uh, Spartacus is celebrated as a freedom seeker, as as an example of the potential greatness within each human, no matter his social status, no matter his background or education level. Spartacus becomes a, a reference point during the Enlightenment and in successive generations ever since as someone who stands as a symbol of resistance to imperial conquest, to colonization, to repression. And note that Spartacus is not famous for actually gladiating in the arena. He's famous for standing up to Rome and for sending a message to to future generations. We do know about some other famous gladiators. There's a particular gladiator who was active during the second century BC, a guy named Pachidianus. Uh, who was a professional. And stories about him are still being told by Cicero a hundred years later and and the poet Horace years even after that. And they still reference him as the best gladiator who ever lived since the dawn of mankind. And focus especially on a kind of grudge match he had against a guy named Iserninus who fought in anger. Uh, So Pacitianus is like this symbol of control, of maturity, of wisdom and and insight into the the human state uh, versus passion and lack of discipline and just letting yourself run amok. So it's a kind of lesson that is remembered as exemplary and something to be taught to the children, I guess.
4: Well, we've, Mention Spartacus, very well known, I imagine, to our listeners. Scott Jeans on Instagram has asked about: Well, was Spartacus's revolt the only major gl- gladiator rebellion? And if not, did any almost succeed?
3: Yes, it's the only one. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so you know there are, there are gladiators who get involved in in other kinds of resistance in certain ways. Uh, gladiatorial troops were. Useful as potential thugs in urban riots during the late republic. Um, there's some evidence that people at the time are claiming that you know their opponents are all gladiators. Um, they're using it as an invective as an epithet to suggest the low standing of their political opponents and so forth. But there's some other evidence that. Suggest that gladiators assembled for certain spectacles in Rome could be deployed as, you know, kind of threatening escorts for major political players, as something that could be used potentially as muscle uh, in, you know, street combat or, you know, um, that sort of thing. Uh, there's also this really interesting episode involving gladiators associated with Mark Antony. Uh, supposedly who were in place to perform at the victory celebrations that they were anticipating. Once Antony and Cleopatra won out over Octavian, you know, all kinds of shows would be uh, sure to follow in that wake. Uh, of course, that didn't happen. Antony and Cleopatra lost at Actium. And this troop of gladiators is kind of stranded there and have to fight and sneak and commando raid themselves back towards Egypt. Uh, they don't actually make it there, they eventually secure you know, some freedom and mobility and safety. Um, they would make a great movie if we had more details or, you know, people who just make up details. I think it'd make a great movie.
4: I've, well, I've got a few questions about pop culture, movies coming up. From being used as these almost thugs, what was the daily life of a gladiator actually like? I think we tend to think about fights and rather than how they live their life day to day.
3: For most gladiators, shows are fairly infrequent, uh, nowhere near a daily or even a weekly schedule of actual performances. Uh, But clearly, they did train, Uh, they kept in shape, Uh, they were thoughtful about diet and conditioning. they are sort of famous for their, their consumption of barley, sometimes called the barley men. Uh, that may be some form of carb loading for shows. Uh, they paid attention to temperatures. Should they be drinking water? Should they be drinking wine? They did commit to this kind of, of thing. Um, they did get damaged to. So Galen, who's a medical writer and did have a lot of experience with actual gladiators, uh, talks about how their hyper-developed physique, all their muscle mass and sheer mass to enable them to use their weight to thrust shields and swords and so forth, was not a good thing for them. Uh, that it's not something that they could maintain, that it, it made them less resilient. It damaged their bodies in some way. Uh, that repeatedly in fights, their, their arms and legs would be damaged and dislocated. There was risk to the body that's involved That said, they clearly had some kind of family existence, and we can think about this in two ways. Uh, Gladiators who live in dormitories, basically, with the other members of their troop. They live together, they train together, and clearly they develop emotional connections to each other. Um, Very often, it's the fellow gladiators of an individual fighter who set up tombstones for them. And bear in mind that tombstones are not cheap. These are monuments set in stone, meant to last the ages, and as it turns out, they did last the ages. Uh, So that indicates a a bond or an obligation they share within that community that transcends existence on Earth. So that's significant. We do know some gladiators who actually did get married and had children and so forth, had a sort of biological family if we think of it that way. Uh, We have um, tombstones that are uh, set up by the adult children uh, of gladiators, for example. Um, One daughter commemorated her parents, Cornelius, who was the actual gladiator, and Cornelia, his wife, Uh, and inscribed that they were her well-deserving and sweetest parents. There's another episode that took place where four adult sons of a gladiator uh, pleaded for his release from the gladiatorial school because of his excellent service in the arena. And apparently they did this in a public setting, possibly in the arena itself. Uh, The audience was cheering for this to happen and the emperor granted it. Uh, and pointed out, you know, it's good to have a large family and, you know, four surviving adult sons certainly indicates success in that matter. Uh, so we do have those kinds of of perhaps more normative family experiences that some gladi- gladiators are having.
4: Could you tell us a bit more about what we know about that experience of having to
3: fight those they clearly have bonds with? We can imagine that this must have been painful and alarming, the knowledge that you might end up um, fatally wounding or even outright killing someone that you associate with on a daily basis, someone that you feel connected to. And certainly that's something that's that's picked up on in some gladiator movies, imagining, rethinking that. That said, there's the possibility that you can prepare for that um, by practicing not just movements, Choreograph steps that show off your weapon skills, but also potentially minimize the risk involved. Um, There are different kinds of targets on the body, of course, that are going to be less dangerous uh, to someone that you actually care about. On the other hand, living in close quarters doesn't necessarily ensure that you feel affection for all the members of your troops. And there might have been competition as well, a sort of uh, grudging acceptance that some are going to play better with the crowd and episodes of jealousy. And, and that might also prove uh, an opportunity for more negative interactions. Another thing that we've had
4: a lot of questions about, which was how common were female gladiators?
3: How common were female gladiators? This is a hot question. Uh, That is much contested by scholars. Were female gladiators anomalies? Or does our relatively skimpy evidence represent the tip of the iceberg? And I have to tell you, I'm kind of a tip of the iceberg kind of gal. All kinds of women who do all kinds of things are pretty much absent from our ancient sources of information. And it's not because there are genuinely only 20 women who exist in the empire and they're all staying quietly in one room, right? So we know about the absences in the sources. We know about their silences. Sources do have women with weapons that appear as participants in spectacles, Sometimes the description surrounding this suggests that this is shocking and outrageous. But usually that shock and outrage is directed against the sponsor, usually an emperor. And it's usually an emperor who's making other kinds of bad decisions about spectacle and about power in general. Sometimes we have women with weapons who are described and sometimes even named in large shows as part of the lavish provisioning of engagement and entertainment and performers and so forth. And when they're noted, you know, they're, they're described, sometimes they're, you know, described in more detail, but they're not singled out as something that's utterly unique and bizarre, right? But actually just part of a very expanded, very detailed, very expensive uh, show. We have a few commemorations of historical female gladiators. Uh, We have an inscription from Ostia that talks about women with swords. They were in a show. Woo! Very exciting. Um, Probably the best piece of, of information is the relief from Halicarnassus that's in the British Museum. So perhaps you've seen it. I hope you go see it regularly. (laughs) It's really great. It's really interesting. Yay, you. Uh, It comes from the second century CE, second century AD, and it has two women facing off against each other. Uh, They have their swords pointing towards each other. Uh, They have weaponry on. They have shields. Uh, They're stepping forward in a kind of dynamic pose. It's a face-off. Uh, between these two women, and they're in so-called heavy armature. They're carrying significant weight in weapons and protection, and bear in mind that shields are are weapons as well. Their names are there underneath them. Amazon and Achillea, great names, There's an inscription written above them that indicates that both of them were granted missio. Both of them were granted release to fight another day. There was no death. Uh, So it's a recognition of their fighting skills, their determination, the effort that they're putting forward in this. Neither is yielding, neither is submitting, and that's indicated as well, of course, by their posture. And those names, those names are great. Amazon, of course, a reference to the ancient, imagined female-dominated society famed for their war skills and their interactions with heroes of yesteryear, heroes like Achilles. And one of them is, of course, named Achillea. Um, So Achilles was famous for fighting Amazons, too. He, at the Trojan War, had this face-off with the queen of the Amazons, Penthesilea, He's known for falling in love with the Queen of the Amazons at the moment that he strikes the fatal blow. So just as the spear is going in, she starts to die. He realizes she's the only woman he could love. So poignancy. Um, Achilles, interestingly enough, too, uh, also had a certain amount of gender fluidity in his backstory. When he was just a teenage lad, uh, before the the Trojan War, his mother was trying to hide him uh, from being recruited because she knew that his doom was potentially to to die and and she wanted to protect him. Uh, So she put him with the royal women on Skyros, dressed as a girl, claiming, oh, my daughter was raised by Amazons. She needs to be civilized. She needs to be cultivated and learn about, you know, domestic responsibility and so forth. Uh, And Achilles is feminized, by that, but not just by what he's wearing. His face, his body, his shoulders start to take on the softness and and sweetness of femininity. And of course, the the beauty. Uh, So that experience starts to have an impact on his core masculinity and has a tension inside Achilles that that may linger on because people know this story. Uh, So Achilles is inherently different He's compellingly attractive, and he's still powerful Achilles, of course, uh, but there's that that in him, and maybe that's also inspiring this particular woman to take on the arena name Achillea. Lots of sexual resonance in the arena. Another question for
4: you about female gladiators is, is how
3: were they almost seen in society? How female gladiators were seen in society depends on do- who's doing the looking, you know? Um, Much of our surviving texts present the perspective of elites, especially elite males, who have a certain kind of sensitivity uh, about status. They want to protect their privilege and so forth. So they have a kind of lens that they're using. That lens is not something that's used by everyone. You know, there are thousands of people in the stands of the Colosseum, and clearly a lot of them are finding the gladiators attractive and appealing and relatable in ways that are vastly different uh, from the standpoint of, you know, the Vestal Virgins or the Senators and and so forth. Uh, So someone with a senatorial standing might be shocked and appalled uh, by women in the arena. And certain laws were passed uh, to keep elites out of the arena, to keep them off the stage at various points in time, banning that kind of activity. We do know that people, nevertheless sometimes took up a sword in the backyard and and trained as gladiators. And some of those people were female people. Um, They were drawn to it for different reasons. And and maybe part of it is the, the feeling of power and agency that's so physically being realized by the gladiator. Sometimes they just want to thrust the sword home.
4: I'd like to almost take us to the decline of gladiators, So we've got a question from Zabby Maureen on Instagram. He's asked us when and how did the gladiatorial games come to an end?
3: That's an excellent question. Uh, And the fact is we don't actually know. We have bits and pieces of information that people have drawn in to make an argument and others have poked at that and said, no, you can't actually say that. Uh, It used to be believed that Constantine, as the first emperor who was Christian, did away with gladiatorial conduct because it was the the right thing to do. Um, It's true that Constantine, at one point in time, redirected condemned criminals away from gladiatorial schools and into mines. Ancient mines are horrible. That would have been a quicker and much more wretched kind of existence, faster to to death. So it's not exactly a a decision of, of mercy in that regard. Uh, it does cut off one supply line for gladiators, but that's it. And clearly, gladiatorial combat is still going on long after Constantine is dead. It seems to have waned in popularity a bit, and certainly it's true that Rome itself is no longer the, the capital of the, the Roman world. But gladiatorial combat continues into the 5th the century some people suggest that there's another ban in 404. That's iffy, seems to just be applied to, to Rome. And maybe it's just about, you know, the, the ceasing activity of the imperial schools that are there. It's clear, because we know about a, a famous incident that happened to St. Augustine in the 5th century, that there are still gladiatorial combats going on throughout the empire. What does change in this later period is the industry of spectacle. Uh, There's a lot more emphasis on chariot racing and the chariot factions take over much of the so-called entertainment industry. Uh, They're the ones who are organizing all kinds of of performance at that point in time. And there's a shift away from the West, you know, lots more things happening in Constantinople and other cities in the Eastern Mediterranean.
4: When was the last known description of there actually being gladiated? Do we have a final document, a final piece, an artifact that says, this is is ultimately it? I don't
3: think that we have an artifact that says, this is it, (laughs) this is the last (laughs) one. You know, we have, long interest in in shows politically, uh, that continues. And it's just difficult to tell what kind of bloodiness is there. So we tend to to focus on the gladiators as the the vulnerable human beings who are exposed to this kind of danger in front of the spectators. Um, But there are beast combats that continue seemingly after the interest in in man-on-man combats uh, has dwindled a bit. And that's you know a fairly horrific death, I would imagine too, and, and certainly lots of danger in exposure to, to leopards and lions and, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it's, it dwindles over time, but we don't have a specific cutoff point that says this and no longer. Some sort of last hurrah, and then we'll stop it. Really, we'll stop it.
4: Well, as promised, I did say we'd return to this earlier. So, I want to talk to you a bit about popular media depictions. So, we've had a few questions here um, from Philip Chadwick on Facebook and Craig Tarlington on Facebook as well. He said, Well, what do you think about films about gladiators? Can pop culture really give us some sense of reality?
3: I love gladiator movies. (laughs) Some of my favorites. I really enjoy the Kirk Douglas Spartacus, which is a terrific film. I get something new out of it every time I watch it. And I teach courses on film, so I have watched it many, many, many times. But it's excellent. And recently, I have just been so caught up by the emotional growth of Spartacus and his ability to connect with other human beings and specifically his relationship with Varinia. It is so, so, so good. And I don't want to start crying, but I will. You know, I have. It it makes me weep. Uh, Gladiator is also really good. Uh, The imagery and the constructed identity of Maximus. Personally, I wanted a lot more on his friendships with the other gladiators that are that are initiated in in North Africa. Um, I got that with the Stars series on Spartacus, which was really good and really spent a lot of time uh, very interestingly uh, treating those connections, those relationships within the Ludus Uh, and beyond the Ludus too, the the lanistas in Capua and their competition over Roman patronage and so forth. Uh, identity and autonomy in the context of Roman colonization, Roman coercion. It's really, really rich. I especially loved uh, series one uh, with Andy Whitfield. I've written extensively about episode six, so episode six of series one is really compelling with with Spartacus as both the, the victim of Roman colonization, Roman expansion, Roman militarism, and also a tool for perpetuating that. It's really very powerful. Watch it if you haven't seen it. I have a fondness, too, for a bunch of um, they're called sort of Roman Christian movies of classic Hollywood. A lot of them based on 19th and 20th century novels like The Robe, um, Demetrius and the Gladiators, Victor Mature. Bless his expressive, meaty face. Um, they're goofy, but they are so of their time. And, and I find them uh, charming on a number of different levels.
4: So here's another one for you. This one's from Jacks Ambrose on Twitter who's asked you, who was a better gladiator, Spartacus or Maximus?
3: Uh, Well, we see Maximus, of course, using his gladiatorial skills to achieve his end, right? And we don't really see that with Spartacus. It becomes a different sort of story with Spartacus once he goes to war uh, against Rome. Um, There, it's the connections that he's making with his supporters and with his potential allies more than his his knife skills or you know his net skills or what have you, um, so on that level, um, Maximus has the has the advantage. Um, but they're different stories. Hard to make a competition out of something
4: where they are so different, I guess.
3: And I I should point out too, of course, that Maximus is an invented character who didn't exist historically. Spartacus was a historical character who actually did carry on a war against Rome that lasted a, a significant amount of time. And I think that matters too. I think
4: we're at our last question now. What do you think people have wrong about
3: gladiators? Well, I think to many people are caught up in the, the idea of, of Thunderdome. Uh, that you go in there and you are going to die, period. That this is where death, 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 death happens. And there is death happening. These are blood events. There is risk and danger involved, but that's not all they are. Uh, The arena is a distillation of Roman power, but it's, it's a complicated distillation. And there are a lot of people who are engaged in the meaning making that is going on in the amphitheaters. And they're not all people on top. The arena was a place for a lot of important discussions. Uh, The Roman audience had very good communication skills. And they use them in this universe that's created in the Colosseum. There's a lot of connection going on. Uh, The emperor is pretty much on the spot. He is there to create a positive experience for people. And there's discourse that's happening. Uh, People in the stands are chanting loudly at him about things they want to happen, things that are going on in the arena, but also other things. Taxes, changes they want to be made in their environment that will affect their lives. And the emperor's under pressure to say yes in order to keep the positive vibe going in the event and make it a successful spectacle. And there's also communication coming up from the arena too. You know, those people have a certain amount of autonomy to influence what goes on for them and to affect the crowd and to affect the emperor. You know, uh, that one guy whose four sons pleaded for him did get the release that he wanted, did get the honor paid to him in a very public event. Um, so um, there's a lot of a lot of communication, a lot of declaration, a lot of power being wielded in different ways by different people.
0: That was Alison Futrell, associate professor of history at the University of Arizona. You can find plenty more on ancient Rome, including on Roman Britain and Roman medicine, at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.